The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. And welcome to Business is Boring. You might have seen a new soda popping up around town, one in striking black and white with a smiley face and the name Good Shit. It's the world's first pre and probiotic soda, something you can drink that's yum and good for your microbiome and so good for your whole system. Named Good Shit as a nod to all of this and a pretty unique take on the category. It comes from a couple who are also behind some other famous brands as distributors of Tony's Chocolate, Seedlip Non-Alcoholic Spirits and McClure's Pickles. Bex Coey and Nick Brown come to the business from backgrounds managing shapeshifter and launching hot sauces. And to talk the journey and all that good shit, Bex and Nick, nice to see you two. Thank Kia ora. You. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. Hey, so tell me about your backgrounds. There's so many people will know the products that you um, that you represent and that you're building, um, but might not know your stories into the business. Um, so, Nick, you, you you come from like media and launching hot sauce, right? Yeah, I was I was in the sales role, uh, working um, with a lot of businesses, all sorts of people, trying to get their products to market, and. I realized after a little while that I used to think that you, you had to have, there was some kind of secret. You had to know something to to be in business. But I, I quickly realized that most of these people were making it up as they, as they went along. And I thought, well, maybe maybe I could have a crack at something. So I, uh, I started making or got involved with a hot sauce company kind of on the side. So I had my daytime job. But overnight, I'd go in and, and we'd cook hot sauce in a, in a kitchen that we would borrow. And then I would sit at home labeling bottles and, and started selling them on, on markets and to cafes and so on. So that was kind of my first step into being in business for myself and, and kind of getting into this food world. I love that idea that you kind of um, clocked that everyone was making it up. I yeah. had that feeling when we came home from the hospital with our kids for the first time. And I was like, we can't leave with our kids. Like, yeah. we, we don't know what we're doing. And it's like, no one's known what they're doing. <laughs> we had no idea either. No I, idea. I thought we should have a test before we left hospital. I was like, are you letting me leave with this child? <laughs> I had to work hard to get my driver's license, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. And, and Bex, you're... I mean, you were part of building another kind of Kiwi icon with Shapeshifter. Tell me about that journey. Yeah, so I was the band manager for over a decade of both Shapeshifter and Lady Six. And uh, I I guess the journey started, I played at the Monterey Jazz Festival in California when I was uh, 18. And we were, all the musicians, they stay in the same hotel and we were jamming in the corner with all the great jazz artists, Roy Hargrove, all the cool guys. And I just thought, I will have to sit in a room by myself and practice a very long time to be as good as I want to be. And I really love spreadsheets. Like, says no one ever. <laughs> you know, so I I left school going, I want to manage bands. And I got a, 
every single rejection letter from every single record label around that I could find. And so my parents were amazing and they said, you should start your own business and we're going to help you out by giving you business cards. So I've never been employed and I've never had a job. And I'm really thankful for that because I think if I ever had one, I would probably feel really comfortable. You know, I like being on the edge. So um, at the age of 19, I started my own business and uh, yeah, had the beauty of managing Shapeshifter in 86 for 10 years. And that was a wild ride. I mean, if you look at Shapeshifter from when we started, we had this theory that we would sell out a small venue quickly and then go to a slightly bigger venue and sell it out quickly. And that's how we kept growing until, you know, we created Coromandel Gold. That was a big festival, 15,000, 20,000 people for New Year's Eve and for Tianga, uh, because of the crazy popularity of that band. And uh, and then with Lady, you know, we spent a lot of time touring around Europe. She supported Gil Scott Heron on his final world tour. Erica Badu and the big stadiums of Berlin. It was it was a crazy, crazy ride and such an incredible lesson. You know, we had companies in different countries of the world. We were dealing with different currencies. It was a business degree and a really weird way to do it. <laughs> and I, you know, I imagine like um, all of the challenges of running a business um, with promotion and you know managing people and organisation um, and logistics. But then throw in all the randomness of like the rock and roll and music lifestyle. Yeah, totally. It was um, it was wild, but so great. I was really blessed with the fact that both with Shapeshift and Lady Six, they were really good friends, and we were like a family. So, you know, we'd spend eight weeks together in Europe in a tour bus or wherever we were. But it was like travelling with your family, and you know, there are quirks and craziness that comes with that. Um, but yeah. I mean, what goes on tour stays on tour. It's the old story, but, you know, we had a lot of fun. <laughs> what, what I observed, I uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, Lady Orbex's driver uh, in, in Germany when we were based in Berlin. So Bex moved her artists over there to put some time into Europe to kind of develop the groundwork she'd laid over a few years and actually base herself there. So I got the privilege of driving. What I observed was we would drive for six, seven hours across one side of Germany to another to make a 20-minute live radio interview and then we'd jump back in the car and drive another five hours to a small venue to play in some suburb and watch Lady and Parks with their, their young son, Philly, do that work on the ground to kind of build the brand. That's what it took. Uh, so I got to kind of observe how the business was built really with just hours and personal sacrifice and flexibility and adaptability, et cetera, you know, which was quite quite awesome to watch. Yeah. And what a cool thing, like, to be um – you know, part of New Zealand culture here and also taking, you know, some of the best of Aotearoa overseas. Uh, it's really cool the way that, like, um, you know, there's a bunch of drum and bass acts who make their living out of popping to Eastern Europe once or twice a year and Pat Freddy's and stuff rocking around Berlin. And, yeah, it's, it's so it's so cool to see to see that. Yeah, it was so crazy. When we were living there with Lady, she had just released her single, Like Water, which is one of her really popular songs. And I remember getting on the train, the subway in Berlin, and we were off back to the airport to go to another European festival and we looked up at the screens on the train and there she was. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, we were going around the autobahn doing all these tours and stuff that Nick was saying and we'd go to a Burger King or something in some random town in Germany with a TV screen and there she was. And it was just an incredible moment to go, oh, 
This is all yeah. doing something. Or this walking, is creating through, something. walking through Brixton and somebody blats fast in the car with windows down and you hear Diggy going, fire! <laughs> You're like, oh yeah. <laughs> Getting out there. Yeah. In that life, I imagine as well, as you start to kind of um, have kids and settle down a bit, becomes a little bit harder. What, what led yeah. you back to start the, the Cook and Nelson? So it was, um, I think there's a really... When you become a first-time mother, you have no idea really what you're in for. And I kept on going with music. Uh, and I think by the time Ella was three months old, the acts had done three world tours and I'd been awake in the middle of the night scheduling breastfeeds with conference calls with New York, Berlin, wherever. Um, and after three months, that led to complete burnout. So um, when we were expecting our son, Harry, we made the decision that we couldn't do that again. You know, it wasn't. So uh, the moment of spending 10 years of your life completely devoted to something and then, you know, the way that I managed, it was it was like a marriage. You can't sell it. It's, it's a relationship. It's a family. And to actually just have to stop and let it go was uh, quite quite a hard thing to do. But at the same time, change is good. It was good for the acts to have change. It was good for, for us to do something different. And, you know, you, you come to a point where you have to put your family first and figure out how you want to parent. And we really wanted to parent in a way that we're always around for our children. Um, I didn't want to be away for eight weeks, back for a month, away for eight weeks, back for a month, you know. So, um, yeah, I just had to walk away. Um, but, uh, again, they're family, so we see them all the time. It's just a different, you know. And then into building a new thing, which, you know, after, <laughs> after having, and I imagine there's so much identity and everything um, caught up in that as well. And then having to kind of, having spent 10 years building and being part of the, the growth journey of these things and then starting yeah. starting afresh. So, so what kind of led you into what became Cook and Nelson, the wholesale business? I, I, I think you've, you've touched on something really interesting there, that idea that after 10 years you've, you've built something and, and identity, and to a degree, you know, success and man is wrapped up in all that you've accomplished. And uh, having the ability to step away from that and then become a total novice in a new space is, is quite daunting, but it's also extremely liberating and quite exciting. Um, so w we started Cook and Nelson um, really from a very simple position and that was we were selling a bit of hot sauce into supermarkets i was selling a little bit of it overseas through a distributor in australia and and he was telling me about mcclure's pickles and he kept telling me about them and eventually persuaded me to buy a pallet off him and bring it in and and all we really did at the beginning was we took that to our existing buyers showed them the pickles and asked them if they were interested in them and that was really the starting point for us for, for that very small beginning we we then started building up the company. And, and I guess as we went, we were faced with well, quite a few different challenges and, and learning and taking those lessons and evolving and uh, beginning to then build expertise in this space is, is kind of what's happened over well, the last seven years now as we sort of build this business. How do you go about, because you've got such a fun stable of um, brands there, how do you go about selecting what you are going to represent? And What's involved in actually kind of getting something that might be known overseas but not known here 
onto these like really highly contested shelves and grocery and the like? Initially, it was quite simple. We, we Anything that we liked that we couldn't find here was something we were interested in. Uh, and, and we were lucky we were surrounded with a really good cohort of people whose opinions we trusted, whether they were chefs or restaurant owners or supermarket buyers, etc. So we would show them all the time things we were excited about. I'd be racing down to see Kyle uh, at Culprit and showing him some Japanese high and show you that I'd found, you know, and thought was amazing. And uh, I'd take his feedback on board and, and determine whether it was worth us bringing it in. And, and then it was the matter of the practical things. So how much is it going to cost? How much is it going to cost to ship? What are the compliance? Um, what compliances are we going to face around labeling? Is there duty involved? So doing the, com- the cost analysis around, okay, we think it's a great product. Uh, our customers think it's a great product. Is it viable? Um, and then the next stage really is building out the supply um, chain side of it. In, in terms of McClure's and, and Tony's and Seedlip, along that journey, we began to, uh, I guess, reform the business to be more aligned to our own values. So it was important to us to have products that we loved and liked. But it began to become increasingly important to us that they stood for something more than just being a great product, a great pickle. Um, we began to get more and more interested in what they were doing within their communities, why they exist in the first place, the people behind the products. And we became increasingly uh, interested in brands that kind of were more closely aligned with our own values. So we started then looking for global challenger brands who were actually looking to do uh, something fundamentally better in the world. You know, so in the case of Tony's, it's eradicating slavery in, in the sourcing of cocoa and the cocoa trade and trying to address some of the inequalities in, in the chocolate industry. Well, that is something we can wholeheartedly get behind and get involved in. And it makes doing what we do, it gives real, it really underscores our own values, but also makes turning up for work and fighting that fight in market uh, a lot easier when you can truly buy into those visions. Yeah, true. And, and with Seedlip that you were very early on to, right? Mm. And then that's become that kind of, you know, alcohol-free or low alcohol or no alcohol, sober curiosity, all of these ideas have really risen in the public consciousness. And Seedlip was one of those you know, pioneering iconic brands there. Yeah, so we actually found Seedlip. So it was my first New Year's Eve not putting on or being involved in a music festival. And I said to Nick, I can't be in New Zealand. I can't do it. I can't be here. And we both had family in England. So we said, oh, we'll go for a white Christmas. And we took a two-year-old and a six-month-old to England. And um, it was more savage than any tour I'd ever (laughs) been on. And we ended up in the Cotswolds at this place called Dalesford Organics. And we hadn't slept for like a week because we had toddlers and babies and jet lag. And I said to Nick, I need a cocktail. And he said, well, you're breastfeeding, you can't. And the bartender looked at me and said, well, this has just arrived. It's a non-alcoholic spirit. And Seedlip's the world's first. It didn't exist before. And I looked at him and I said, go for gold, make me a cocktail. And we were sitting in this picturesque bar feeling terribly exhausted. And I got given the most beautiful looking cocktail and the most incredible sophistication of flavours. And I thought to myself, this is what I needed. It wasn't the alcohol I needed. It was a moment that I could enjoy and feel that I could relax and um, got in touch with Seedlip straight away. And I said, look, we've just started this import company. We've got no staff. We've got no inventory management system. We've got no retailers, um, but we need to represent you. And uh, that was an 18-month journey to... uh, uh, when we did it, they had just launched in Selfridges and they were selling out every five seconds. And um, 
18 months later, we landed the first shipment in New Zealand and it sold out in less than a week. And um, from there, the trajectory has been so massive. And I was reading an article the other day about the difference between a movement and a trend. And a movement is consumer-led. It's it's not something that's quickly going to come and go, you know, and I think the non-alcoholic movement is that. And, you know, I'm thrilled to see a lot of different brands as well in the category growing because our philosophy is that no matter whether you're having a non-alcoholic cocktail, a low-alcoholic cocktail, so Seedlip's used as a modifier a lot, so you can, instead of saying having a 50ml gin and tonic, you can have a 25ml gin Seedlip and then tonic and have a low cocktail, or a full cocktail, that it should just be a banging drink. You should just have a great flavour explosion, very sophisticated. And to create that movement when we launched it, there was a lot of um, people quite offended by it. You know, we would do we would out at events every single night because we were teaching the category. Nick spent over a year in legislation with the supermarkets, getting seed lip on the shelf and non-alcoholic spirits on the shelf because spirits aren't in supermarkets. And Talk, talking to district li- uh, licensing authority people about how they'd interpret the sale of alcohol act in supermarkets for yeah. something called the spirit, you know, that sort of thing. It's called a and, spirit, but it's got no alcohol. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And being able to create that so the non-alcoholic products are accessible and they're easy for consumers to get and they're understood um, is something that we're really, really passionate about. And um, Seedlip, uh, is founded by Ben Branson, who actually lived in New Zealand after he finished uni on a combi van at the bottom of Mount Hutt and was a snowboard instructor. He's got the most amazing love for New Zealand. He came here three times in the in the first year that we launched, and um, you know, and just growing that category and seeing the movement has just been a really incredible um, thing to watch and be a part of. What a cool thing to make happen! And yeah, that idea of having a lovely little ritual, like it's still a little treat for you. But it's not giving you kind of organ damage. And, yeah. and especially, yeah. especially in lockdown. I mean, in the first few yeah. weeks of that first lockdown, yeah. I think everyone just had a party. But the emails I was getting constantly from consumers saying, I need to delineate my day. Yeah, I need to have something that goes from day to night. I need to hear glug, 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 yes, yeah. tinkle, tinkle of the ice at 5.30 with my G&T. But totally, I, I but I'm trying to, to homeschool. Yeah. I'm trying to run a business. I'm trying to run the house. I'm trying to keep, you know, the family together. And and I can't wake up hungover every morning. So it became this amazing thing over lockdown where yeah, people were constantly communicating with us about how it was just, you know, making their – day-to-night shift really easy. Yeah, Seedlip was that brand that kind of tipped us over when people started sharing their stories with us about why they weren't drinking or who they knew that weren't drinking or the changes that they were looking to make. That was the brand that kind of switched us over to, okay, let's look for for brands that have have this extra something going on that are opening up and creating categories but delivering something to customers that they're, that they're really looking for that is more or more meaningful or more purposeful or more mindful. Um, so it was a real it was a real tipping point for us. We still get a lot of people sharing a lot of stories with us around they're drinking or they're not drinking uh, with seed lip. Um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's it becomes a lot more rewarding. <laughs> you must know? have heard a lot of them. And just one last thought before we jump out um, out of this, this part would be about how you go about building brands that you know are from overseas in, in many cases and making them part of the local culture because a lot of people would have interacted with your toasty takeover. Yeah, yeah I think. Um, I only know music and I've never known anything else. So I treat uh, an, an, a brand as, as an 
artists I, I treat us as a record label and Nick and I work re- you know we work really hard on the marketing because to make a band work in culture there's certain things you got to do you got to take it on tour you've got to um, get it into establishments that people know and they love and so we really have the philosophy when we release a brand I release it like a band and get it into you know the tapestry of the New Zealand culture so Nick and I were standing in the kitchen one one day and we said, oh, let's make a toasty for lunch. We really feel like a toasty with pickles in it. Then we had this great idea that if we wanted a toasty with pickles in it. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> they, they taste amazing on a cheese toasty, super budget, you know, thick white bread, yeah, a bit of cheese, few pickles. And we created the great New Zealand toasty takeover. And the reason we created the Great New Zealand Toasty Takeover is we were seeing a lot of our eateries over winter. Um, not as many people going into them, uh, you know, for people just staying home and things like that. And we were like, what can we do to drive consumers into hospitality outlets over winter? So we thought, well, we're toasters. How much competition has got to be the best? Yeah. That's about the size of it. We went to a few of them first and went, hey, we've got this idea. Would you be keen on serving up toasties? And they're like, oh, we make a toasty anyway. We're like, great, okay. Well, let's judge whether yours is better than theirs one down the road because they say theirs is the best. So we stirred the pot a little and uh, and that was really the birth of it. And then this year we did 143,000 toasties. Over 200 um, eateries. Yeah, over a 10-week period. So that's a lot of that's a lot of toasted sandwiches. Um um, it's it's a fun promotion to be involved in because it delivers so much to the participating venues that, that are part of it because so many Kiwis get to go in there and enjoy a toasty. Um, and we get to see the impact on those people that win. So those chefs or those eateries that get involved and, and, and get crowned as making the best toasty in the country have huge upsides, both personally for the chefs behind it, but also for the businesses. And that's, that's enormously rewarding for us to be a part of. Um, yeah. It's a a lot of fun and it's a lot of toasties. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. And we'll be back after the break to talk about growing the company and deciding to do some good shit in the drink space. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns.
and welcome back to Business is Boring. So you had experience in brands and distribution, and I love that idea of treating a brand like a band. Uh, what led you, though, to get into the kind of different world of making your own drink? We reached a point, I think, where we realised that with the brands that we'd worked with, that we had learned quite a bit. Um, when we're building that brand in market, we spend a lot of time talking to the founders and the people involved in those businesses to understand what they have done on the ground in their in their home market. So we're better prepared to, uh, I guess, for the journey we're going to go on here in New Zealand when we launch the product. Um, and I, I guess it was inevitable that at some point we would say to ourselves, okay, having worked with these global challenger brands, what what can we do? Um, at the time when those thoughts started happening, we were also acutely aware of how vulnerable we, we were and are being an import company. So we're very tethered, obviously, to the strength of the Kiwi dollar. We saw freight increases going up dramatically. Um, so it, it, it's been a challenge to to be solely dependent upon import. So having a thought to what we could do to balance that risk and, and think about export again was, I guess, a natural um, journey to kind of reach that 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 thought. The heavy jars of pickles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. they're real heavy. They are, and that is an issue. You can run to thirty nine thousand pounds in a truck out of uh, out of Detroit, where they come from, um, and that's seventeen point one pallets, which means we ship a lot of air, which, uh, yeah, that is a, it is a, it is a challenge. Um, so, uh, at the same time, I think the other thing that Bex touched on when we talked about Seedlip is that we, we, we really developed that category. We created that category, which created opportunity for competition. We don't really view them as competition. I think it's a healthy thing. Uh, the same's happened with pickles, the same to a different degree with, with chocolate or more with the shift towards more ethical chocolate. So it all aligned to us looking at whether we should be doing something for ourselves here that has the potential to be exportable. And we began to, in the same way that we look at categories now for the import business for Cook and Us, we look at categories which are underserved, where we don't have strong domestic production or very little innovation. And we think, where can we truly add value in what is generally a cluttered space with a lot of noise? We don't want to put a product into a category where there's already a lot of innovation, there's strong domestic production. We're not going to be adding anything. We're just going to be adding noise. That's not what we want to do. We want to look at the category and say, there is nothing going on in this space. We can do this a whole lot better. Now, soft drinks wasn't our first choice of space. Um, but we did find there's functional over here and there's soft, sugar-filled, flavorful over here. And there were a few drinks kind of with a foot in each camp, you know, trying to service both. Um, at the time when we looked at developing uh, our brand, uh, Good Shit, um, there was a lot of conversation around probiotics, obviously, with everything that happened in the functional with kombuchas, etc. And there was increasing awareness and conversation happening around prebiotics. Hubbard's brought out breakfast cereal with prebiotics, and you began to see prebiotics gaining column inches and its importance and that relationship between pre and probiotics, a dietary fiber that feeds the healthy bacteria, the probiotics. That was happening more and more. And so we arrived with really, I guess, this question of can we create what is essentially a soda that's tasty for your soda moment, the drink you would choose to have because it's it's lovely, but can we deliver that functionality too? And can we 
do pre and probiotics. And when we started researching pre and probiotic sodas, we couldn't find any in the world that had, that had done that. So we thought, well, this is exciting. Here's a challenge. Uh, and we formed a team around us. So we 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 thought, who can we work with to to realize this vision? And I'll, I'll hand over to Bex here because really it was Bex that reached out to uh, two of our business partners. Um, if you want to share that. Yeah. So when I was doing the last Shapeshifter record I worked on called Stars, my last job was to find them uh, a graphic designer. And I had I just really loved the work that Alt Group did. They'd just redone the uh, Auckland Art Gallery and, and a few things. And, and also there's this energy when you walk into that studio. And when I left to have our son Harry Shapeshifter, my last meeting uh, at Alt, uh, Ben Corbin and Dean Poole, they said to me, let us know we got something else. So we're sitting in the first lockdown and I'm like, well, we've got a soda. So I email Ben and I say, hey, Ben, do you and Dean want to meet up? You said you wanted to talk to me when I had something else and this is four years later, but let's talk about a soft drink. And so when we could meet up, we all met up and our other business partner is an incredible woman, Michelle Preston, who uh, was at Innocent Smoothies in the UK, then was general manager of Coho Road and then Lewis Road in the time of the chocolate milk. And we formed a collective called Poptimist. And Poptimist is all about optimistic products for popular culture. And good shit is our first product. And it's about creating something that's better for you. And so... We created a brand in lockdown. We met up when the laws allowed. And then, uh, yeah, we just worked together on our, you know, what our name was and how the cans looked. And, and, and we settled on good shit because it was striking. It was something that didn't, that you would never forget. And so it's colloquial. It's Kiwiism. It's, it told it like it is. It told it like it is. Yeah. And, it's not there. We haven't used the word to offend. Nick worked really closely with the Advertising Standards Authority and people like that just so we could make sure that... You Gauge know. how offensive or how offended people might be uh, by our choice of positioning. Uh, yeah. And, and to, like, you know, the gut and the growth of understanding about the microbiome and how to kind of care for your um, your gut is, is growing, much like kind of a sober curious movement, I guess. And um, there's... You know, you can kind of look at people and go, well, there's billions of bacteria and one consciousness who's really in charge. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, basically, we're basically a housing estate, aren't we? You know, for a host of living bacteria. And as a, as a decent landlord, we have a responsibility for their upkeep and their and their health and well-being. Uh, we take that very seriously. But also, we, you know, we know that a lot of people aren't drinking or they're just choosing on a Monday to Thursday not to drink or they want a damn good mixer. But we wanted to create a drink where you could walk into a party and hold it and feel inclusive. Or you could be on a yoga mat and feel inclusive. Or you could just, you know, drink it as a normal soft drink. We wanted to create a brand that had attitude and was exciting and made people want to be a part of it. And, and did you? Like like lots of, you know, big ideas. Um, did you feel nervous before? Because mm-hmm. I guess like there's a real kind of, to link it to, you know, good shit and kind of poos and being regular and stuff like is there a nervousness in there oh, they link like <laughs> very definitely i mean <laughs> you know for us it, we were 
In order to achieve volume here, we had to have the support of the supermarkets. We we couldn't drive sufficient volume uh, to make it a viable business without their support. And we were really fortunate in the early development of the product, but also in the brand treatment that we had that support at the very early stage. So before we launched, before we even had uh, the brand down, we had engaged with the buyers, both at Progressive, at Countdown, and also over at Foodstuffs. And with their support and with, with our long-time supporters like Safaro, et cetera, we were, we were fortunate that we, we had the confidence to be able to move forward. But when we first sat around the table and went, okay, we are settling on, on good shit here, you know, I did have a sense of how much work I had ahead of me <laughs> in dealing with compliance and, and everything else, and obviously with a view to export. I mean, it may well be that this brand cannot, cannot exist in its exact format in some particular markets. But, you know, I, I think I like the challenge. The key to it is, though, as Beck said, we're not trying to be offensive. The point is about having a light and irreverent um, touch that encourages conversation around gut health and wellness. And it's about the functionality, you know, as we say, good shit in, good shit out. I mean, it's that simple. And and if you're not nervous and if you're really comfortable, you're not on the edge. And if Mm. you're we've we've created the world's first product, you know, that's innovation. And if we settled on a name and a um, you know, in a can that wasn't irreverent. It wasn't interesting. It wasn't different. It didn't stand out. Those white cans in the fridge, they pop. Mm. Then we would be doing the product a disservice and ourselves because we like to do things a bit differently. Yeah, well, I, I love it. And I love the um, the idea that you want to give yourself a little, you know, soft drink as a treat. But the worst thing you can do for your gut is to chuck a whole lot, you know, six tablespoons of sugar in there yeah. or two teaspoons of sugar in there, like a normal thing. You're, you're leaving like a, 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 a trail of disaster through your body with this acid. And then, um, you know, your, your, your microbiome, your gut health is linked to mental health. A hundred percent. To your immune system. Like, yeah. what are you doing? You send me a little missile down there. And our ginger, so it tastes like a ginger beer. It's got 75% less sugar than other comparative drinks on the market. But then it's got 10 grams of soluble fibre. So that's more fibre than you'd get from Metamucil. But the soluble fibre is actually the best fibre for your intestines. So, you know, you have this drink which you think is a treat, but it's almost better for you to drink than not to drink. I mean, that's the key to good shit. It is so good for you, so good for your microbiome. And there's, you know, there's a lot of research about psychobiotics, so about you know, trusting your gut, the saying is really true, you know, and... Um, you, the the probiotics, I won't dive too deeply into the science, but but you, the, there are bacteria that will release enzymes that lift your mood if you feed them stuff that they like, like a dog wagging its tail to ask you for their <laughs> next treat. It will let you know that this is stuff it likes. Um we haven't got that scientific link between drinking good shit and the and the soluble dietary fiber in there, but that's what happens. The probiotics go woohoo, party! Thanks very much. I want more. <laughs> yeah, and that's such a cool space to, you know, where do you take it next? Like, how do you research out, or how do you get, um, you know, options that are for different types of bacteria, or where where does this kind of cool concept go? I think that's the exciting thing. It's like a, it's like how far down the rabbit hole can you go? Do we do we jump into an entirely new category and go? Okay, you know we're having fun here and and we're making headway and we're learning a lot. 
what could we do in this space and go back to the basics of what we do with categories anyway and say, well, where, where, where's, where is there no innovation? Where should there be innovation? Where's the exciting challenge? And I think it kind of comes down to us and why we're why we're in this ultimately, and and for our partners, Michelle and, and Ben and Dean, it's what excites us and what are we looking for? When we first sat down with Ben, Dean and Michelle, we said we, we really want to build business around a really simple organizing principle, and that is, is good, does good. And the is good is that it has to be, obviously, a great product in its own right. But wider than that, to go to those values is actually contributing in a meaningful way. And then the does good is what we can do as a business within our community and around us, because that's why we get up in the morning. That's what drives us. And and where are the rewards otherwise in business? For us, it's not about, it's certainly not about security. It's not yet about a paycheck. It's about uh, I guess, honouring our values and about challenging ourselves and then being equal to those challenges. That's why we're in this. So it's a very roundabout way of not answering your question as to what's next. <laughs> ah, we don't know. I guess we don't know, you know, how far, whether we pursue the gut health relationship and look for other ways we can connect with that and drive that conversation or whether we just look somewhere else entirely and and, and dive into that. We've just released our latest flavour, Tropical. So that's uh, basically summer in a can. It's mango and passion fruit. And for us at Poptimus, we really feel like this is good shit's first summer because last summer we just got out of lockdown and then there was another lockdown and we were trying to get into supermarkets and buyers were on the floor and on the checkouts because there wasn't enough staff. So we're really excited about focusing on this summer in New Zealand. And then next year, uh, we've got a lot of export opportunities. So we're just working through what country we're going to start at. Yeah, awesome. And I mean, I love the idea of, you know, one day being able to spit in a cup or something and then you send it off and then someone feeds, sends you back whatever's right to feed your gut. Like, right. I think, like, this, oh, that this, could this, be an idea. There's just so much to know, um, to, to, to learn about this this evolving space. Um, I spoke to a guy from the Insides Company, um, Garth Sutherland, who's fantastic, and he said that the more he learns about the gut, the more he thinks of himself like a gardener, where, you know, if he does something that isn't good for his gut, he then goes and goes, oh, boy, I'd better put some seaweed and some compost down. I'd really better look after it for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> well, your gut yeah. is two kilos. And if you think about every single other part of your body that weighs two kilos and how you look after it, you know, with how much money you spend on makeup for your face or how much you know money you spend on sun cream for your skin or whatever it is, what are you doing to invest, you know, one of the most important organs in your body? You know, and so that's something that we've been talking a lot about um, with Good Shit and Poptimist as well. Yeah, awesome. And a couple of questions we love to ask everyone. Like, what would your advice be for people who, you know, maybe they have spent 10 years building, uh, you know, you know, building something that they're part of or have successful careers in, in, in media and, um, and, and they want to come, you, you know, they have that itch to start their own business. What would your recommendations be for, for getting started? Very simply for me, it would be take that first step. And that first step might be as small as registering a business name. It might even be coming up with the business name, you know. But just take that first step. And then really for us, how we've how we've gotten into this position is taking one step after another after another. 
I think it's very challenging if you start a business with a view of we are going to be this and you already define what that business is before you really understand the journey you're about to embark upon. It can also be challenging to invest a whole heap of time determining what that journey is going to be before you actually start the journey. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do some kind of due diligence or preparation, but I think the key is to make a start and know that you don't know everything you're going to need to know. But that's okay, because I don't think anybody does, you know. And if anything, sometimes knowing more can be a disadvantage to you. I don't know. Do I know? I don't know necessarily whether we would have started good shit if we knew everything that we knew now. Maybe we would have, maybe we wouldn't have. But sometimes, you know, going into a highly contested category which is ruthless. With French contracts. (laughs) With contracts that preclude you and block you from getting in there. You know, there's a hell of a challenge ahead of us, but we're in now and we're up for it. But I guess the point is that, that you aren't going to know everything you need to know. And so taking that first step, no matter how small, is really the single most important thing you can do for a business, ultimately. And I think then the other part of it is understanding where reward comes for you personally. Um, For me... It's about the challenge of every day. So when we have a problem, uh, I think it is it is being equal to that challenge, being able to identify that challenge and being able to determine what the most appropriate response is and then emerging the other side uh, with greater knowledge, with a stronger business, having made the right decision or the wrong decision, but having the ability to reflect on that and evolving. So for me, the reward is in the day and it's in the moment and it's in the challenges we're facing. It's not in tomorrow. It's not in some kind of sellout. It's not when we hit, you know, 500,000 toasties in the toasty competition or when we finally export Seedlip into our, our Seedlip, sorry, into, good shit into our first export market. Those, those, are, those are moments to celebrate along the way. But there is no end destination for success for me. So it's understanding where value and reward comes for you personally and making sure you find that in the, in your journey, in the moment, in the day. That's awesome. That must help keep you sane. And how about you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I said, I've, I've never had a job. So I just think you should just do it because – you live once, and why not have a great time and do what you want to do? So I just, I'm all for it. Get started. Yeah, awesome. As a final thought, what will success be for you two and for the company? That's a really interesting question. I was, um, I read a biography of John Coltrane once, arguably the world's best saxophone player, and he never thought any of his solos were any good. And that drive was what kept him going to be better and better and better, to to create the greatness that he was and I feel that very much in business I don't know if I ever will feel like I'm successful because I will always know I've got another mountain to climb and that's what I love about being in business so success for me is challenges having a team around our team is so important we have a team around us with both Cook and Nelson and Poptimist which are just such incredible people who are so great at what they do and we are so fortunate for that. So success personally is just working with incredible people on incredible products and just continuing the challenge. I think I'd define, I'd say uh, that we are successful now because we are living the lives that we want to live. Um, When Bex talked right at the beginning about um, having a, a business or a way of working that enabled us to put the time into those areas of our life that we want to, uh, so family, 
us as a, as a couple working together, our business and our relationships within business with the people that work with us directly or else one of our suppliers or, or one of our customers. Um, success is in, in every day. Um, there isn't a sort of position that I think I'll get to where I go, you know what, I've absolutely nailed it, just as Beck says, it's a constant journey. So I find success if I'm living every day the way I want to be living it. And at the moment, I'd have to say that's generally true which isn't to say that there aren't challenges, frustrations, and problems. There constantly are. Um, but I really quite enjoy that. Yeah, <laughs> so there you go. Hey, well, thanks so much for joining us. Looking forward to seeing where you take uh, Good Shit next. And um, yeah, thanks so much for being here. That's Bex Cohey and Nick Brown. Thank thanks you. for having us. Well, so thank you to Bex and Nick. Thank you to you for listening and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Te Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. In order. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Kia ora e tewi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.